Welcome to Keeping It Green, a podcast for ornamental plant professionals and enthusiasts with hosts Margaret Pickoff and Tom Butzler. And welcome to Keeping It Green, a podcast from Penn State Extension for ornamental plant professionals and enthusiasts. I'm one of your hosts, Margaret Pickoff. I'm a horticulture educator with Penn State Extension, and on each episode, I'll be joined by one of my colleagues on the green industry team as a co-host. On today's episode, my co-host is Tom Butzler. Hello, Tom. How you doing, Margaret? I'm doing pretty well. How are you? Yeah, good, good. We've had some great weather here the past couple of days. That's always nice. We have. I was just saying that I'm feeling my spring allergies starting to to perk up and it's only mid-February. So that's going to be a long season then, right? (laughs) Lots of fun stuff in store. Um, So before uh, on today's episode, we'll be joined by Dr. Rick Bates from Penn State University. But before we get to our interview with Rick, we'll start out with a quick check-in about what we your hosts are seeing or thinking about uh, in the field at this time of year, what we're planning. Um, So Tom, what are you working on currently? Or what are you seeing? Well, just, um, you know, we're heading down the stretch with the the winter meetings. So those are finishing up and and shortly having a pesticide applicator short course coming up. So that'll be a week long training for those applicators or the future applicators just to go through the process and get ready for the exam. But you did mention this idea of what are you thinking about? And you mentioned that warm weather. And so here's a question I have, Margaret, when I was out in some of this almost 70 degree weather. Yeah. Could this be beneficial in the sense that some of these insects that you know are, are detrimental to plant life, such as the uh, spongy moth, could they be you know, advancing in their life stage because they, they have to soak up those heat units to go to the next life stage? Could they be tricked almost into getting ahead of where they really should be. And then we get this cold weather that would come in and kind of slam them and, and, you know, interrupt that life cycle or maybe hit them when they're really vulnerable. So, you know, that 70 degree weather for a couple of days, I mean, that's going to really start pushing some of these, these insects. And I don't know, would that, would that help us out? Have to talk to an entomologist about that, I guess. Yeah. That's such an interesting thought. I think that, um, you know, we've been kind of, uh, one thing that's worrying, obviously, about the warm temperatures is that we're starting to have things bloom. Um, I'm starting to see uh, red maple here in, in the Philadelphia area starting to bloom. And uh, the fruit tree people are, yeah. of course, nervous about uh, blossoms coming out so early. And then also, you know, being hit by a, a late frost or a normal normal timed frost and killing off those those flowers. But I hadn't really thought about besides, you know, us having a mild winter that is maybe not killing off as many pest insects as we would want. Um, what would the effect of of a freeze later on be um, yeah. if they've already hatched and they're already out? Um, well, you kind of alluded to it. I mean, it affects the plants. Those apple growers, yeah, you know, when things go earlier than they should and we get that cold snap, then, you know, they're at a loss. I don't know. Does that work a little bit with the insects? So Yeah. Oh, very cool thought. I think we're going to have to follow up on that. Um, yeah, I've been also thinking about effects uh, that we might see this spring from last summer's drought. Um, mm. And uh, I've been starting to give a couple of talks on conifers and conifer stressors um, 
uh, because I, I got a lot of, uh, of calls uh, in the fall about um, what looks to be drought stress on Norway spruce and some other conifers in the landscape that have shallow root systems. And so I'm kind of curious what's going to show up in the spring, um, you know, a, a bunch of months after that drought that they all experienced. Um, starting to get some calls about arborvitae not looking so good in this part of the state and I'm curious to see what that turns out to be but this is all part of our the fun part of our job that we get to explore these questions. Yeah those are so. tough ones too that's that delayed effect because it kind of have to weed out all the other possibilities so yeah it'll be interesting to see what you see. Yeah yeah it's an exciting time of year. Um, well great cool um, thanks Tom. So let's bring on our guest for today, Rick Bates, who is Professor of Horticulture in the Department of Plant Science at Penn State University. And he's also an Extension Specialist in Ornamental Horticulture. Uh, so welcome, Rick. Hi, Margaret. Hey, Tom. Thanks for having me. Hey, Rick. Thanks, thanks for being on our podcast. This is great. Um, so we like to start off with a pretty basic question. Um, we're wondering if you could describe your role at Penn State. Sure. I have been here for 22 plus years, and I currently have a what's called a three-way split. So I have uh, responsibilities for resident instruction um, and extension work and research. And so the teaching that I do is primarily in support of the landscape contracting program. I teach a class on tree use and identification and a shrub um, identification and use class. And then I also teach a class on post-harvest physiology of horticultural crops. Um, my extension work um, focuses mostly on um, woody trees. And I work with the Christmas tree industry and the uh, nursery industry quite a bit. So I uh, spent a lot of time around the state on Christmas tree farms. Um, and some of my research also gets into that area. Uh, over the last decade or so, we have been um, involved in a nationwide um, conifer evaluation program where we're evaluating uh, Mediterranean firs. This would be Trojan fir, Turkish fir, and Nordman fir for, fir, uh, for Christmas tree use and for landscape use. Um, and um, uh, so that's been a real interesting project. And uh, the second phase of that's uh, starting now and will be going on for the next uh, five to seven years. Then um, there's also an international component to my job where I have uh, had and I'm currently working on a USAID uh, project. So I've had three USAID projects that have focused on uh, Southeast Asia and strengthening seed systems uh, in that area. And so there we're working on um, um, seed systems, post-harvest systems, um, as well as um, uh, what we call wild gardening or wild food plants, the use of uh, indigenous plants to improve income, um, improve diet uh, and dietary diversity. Uh, so I wear several different hats and that's what keeps the job interesting. Wow. Yeah. So many different hats. <laughs> um, I think so. Our, our our interaction with you, I guess, is, is through your extension work. Um, I know Tom was saying that he's had you out to um, to teach at some of his pest walks and turf and ornamentals conference um, that Tom holds at the Penn State Arboretum in the summertime. 
Um, I'm mm. kind of curious. I'm always curious about the Christmas tree industry because it is kind of um, it's within the green industry, but it's kind of its own uh, its own animal, if you will, um, and is kind of outside the realm of certainly you know the the work that I usually do and a lot of us green industry educators. But so you're looking at these bringing in these new um, species or cultivars from the Mediterranean. Um, what kind of I guess, what issues are, are you hoping to solve for or improve upon for the Christmas tree growers? What are they dealing with that uh, it, it helps to bring in these new cultivars? So if you, if you look at the species that Christmas tree growers have used um, over the decades, uh, particularly here in Pennsylvania, um, it's a relatively small group of species. Um, back in the 50s and 60s, for instance, uh, scotch pine was an important Christmas tree species, and the popularity of that species grew, leveled off, and then began to decline, replaced with Douglas fir and Fraser fir, which are now the dominant species. And both Douglas fir and Fraser fir um, have some uh, pest issues, um, namely, Fraser fir um, is very susceptible to Phytophthora root rot, and Douglas fir um, gets a needle cast disease. There are two actually. One is called Rab decline um, needle cast, and the other Swiss needle cast. And um, when all of your eggs are kind of in the Fraser fir Douglas fir basket, and you're battling with those diseases. Um, it, it just calls into question the sustainability of that system, and it, it does cut into profitability as well. And so what really is driving this evaluation project um, started out to be um, focused on Phytophthora root rot. Um, some of these Mediterranean species in the lab, anyway, have shown some um, very marked resistance to several of the Phytophthora species. Uh, that we deal with. And that uh, caught the attention of some researchers and um, Dr. John Frampton um, down at uh, North Carolina State University has worked a lot with the Fraser fur industry there um, and um, uh, really started doing some research on this uh, this genetic resistance to that prevalent disease. And that's what started the project. And so um, we've been able to document um, um, very high um, levels of resistance in Trojan fir, and Turkish fir, and Nordman fir. And Nordman fir um, is fairly common in Europe. As a matter of fact, it's their primary uh, cut Christmas tree species in Europe. They they harvest somewhere around 50 million Nordman fir a year. Turkish fir is closely related to it. And uh, Trojan fir uh, is native to uh, other parts of, of Turkey. Uh, but in that region, there are several of these species that really seem to show promise. And so the Christmas tree industry, with support from um, uh, state Christmas tree associations in Christmas tree producing areas, as well as the National Christmas Tree Promotion Board, um, have funded these evaluation projects. And so we're growing these species out in uh, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Michigan, Oregon, and Washington, some of the major Christmas tree growing areas of the country. 
So you, you had mentioned um, uh, Mediterranean furs that you're evaluating, some of these things you're evaluating, right? So when I think of the Mediterranean, I, I think of a warmer climate. And is that something you're also looking at in kind of preparation that, 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 that things are, might be warming here in Pennsylvania, the growing zones might change in the future? You know, when you think of uh, furs in Western North Carolina, you know, those Fraser furs, those are high elevation, right, that, where they're native to. And, you know, you bring them down in the Pennsylvania, some of these lower elevations, is it getting too warm for them? Yeah, great question, Tom. And the heat uh, that you mentioned is one of the limiting factors um, in where you can grow a good Fraser fir. Uh, you're right, it's a mountain species that likes um, high rainfall, high atmospheric humidity. And when our growers here in Pennsylvania and in other areas try to grow it, um, if you're down in that Philly area, or if you're on like a southwest facing slope, often you have real trouble uh, growing Fraser fir. Uh, and, uh, and that's a problem with some, not all, but some of these Mediterranean species, um, they definitely have both good drought tolerance, and we think heat tolerance as well. Uh, it depends um, which which of the handful of species that uh, occupy that Mediterranean area that you're talking about, uh, but some such as Spanish fir and Greek fir um, do grow in relatively uh, warm climates. Um, they make excellent landscape species um, just because once they get established, they're very drought tolerant. They can take the heat, but they still have really nice foliage characteristics. Yeah. Um, now, for Christmas tree production, if we're looking at something like um, Turkish fir, these are usually grown in some of the higher elevations in Turkey. Okay. Uh, and one of the things that, um, uh, you know, that we needed to evaluate is just how far north could we grow Turkish fir without winter damage? Because it is growing in a warmer area um, in these uh, provenances in Turkey. Uh, you know, can you grow this, let's say, in uh, Michigan without getting winter damage? And actually, in the trial uh, in Michigan, there was some winter damage because we've reached that northern limit. The um, Nordman fir, however, uh, the places where it's indigenous usually is in the high elevation areas of the Caucasus Mountains in the Republic of Georgia. And um, and those places are every bit as cold as some of our northern latitudes here in North America. And that uh, particular species, I think, has better um, cold hardiness. Um, and so, you know, depending on where you might be trying to grow Christmas trees, whether it's maybe the, the Piedmont in North Carolina or, you know, some of the, the higher areas of like Lock, Lackawanna County in Pennsylvania, that might determine whether you're trying to grow a Nordman fir or a Turkish fir. You Got know, it. they're fairly similar in how they look, but uh, again, they're, where they're, they're native um, is a little bit different, you know, so, you know, we, we hope that that's the case. You know, the heat tolerance is a little bit harder to, um, is harder to study in these evaluation trials, um, but um, but we're hopeful. We, we'd certainly feel like the drought tolerance, you know, we know is there. In uh, probably the majority of Christmas tree growers, at least in this mid-Atlantic region, um, they're not irrigating their trees to get them established. Um, and so we're really relying on uh, rainfall in that year of establishment 
Um, and so that drought tolerance is uh, pretty important, especially with the unpredictability of of uh, of drought. You know, as we as we go forward. Yeah, one thing I was just thinking about how Christmas trees are kind of a a, a weird crop because um, they're growing in a nursery setting, but then the whole purpose of them is to cut them down and bring them indoors, which is obviously uh, probably a very harsh environment for them to to persist in. And so I wonder, is a lot of this or is is some of this research also devoted to the post-harvest side of things and is there a difference between species and how well they do once they're cut and brought into, you know, a dry, hot <laughs> living room? Um, yeah, or, or does that mostly have to do with how they're watered and cared for? You know, it's a combination of those things. That's a good question. The post-harvest piece is really important. Um, if you look at um, why consumers might switch from a real tree to an artificial tree, the number one reason is... Uh, what I, what I would call messiness, you know, usually in the surveys, it's characterized as convenience. But what that means really is how many needles uh, are you vacuuming up <laughs> well, after January 1st when you take the tree down, or in some cases, the end of January, depending on how long you leave it up, or like me, maybe until March or April. <laughs> and so the post-harvest <laughs> is, is, um, is, is really an important component, um, that and aroma. Um, if if mm-hmm. you look at uh, consumer surveys regarding what they like about having a real tree, um, aroma usually is somewhere near the top there. You know, mm-hmm. they like the needles to stay on, but they also like a tree that smells good. And one of the best uh, um, species for aromas, balsam fir uh, or Fraser fir. Um, yeah. But with these new species, these Mediterranean species, that's something that we're also looking at. Um, is once you harvest the tree, bring it indoors, um, how well does it hold up? And Dr. Gary Chastagner at Washington State University is uh, really the the country's leading expert on post-harvest care uh, of Christmas trees. And he has a lab set up. So in these uh, valuations, each state state, um, at uh, at the end of fall will harvest branches um, in our trial plots and send these branches out to Gary at Washington State University. And he'll set them up in his post-harvest lab and monitor things like percent needle drop, how long mm-hmm. it takes to begin, um, shedding needles, um, you know, how dry does the tree actually need to become um, before it really becomes a, a problem with messiness. Um, and it's really interesting because um uh, you know, what we're finding is that these Mediterranean species, the Trojan, Turkish, and Nordman fir, if they're well cared for, they hold up really pretty well in the post-harvest environment. They don't shed a lot of needles. Um, and this gets back to your question about the care component. You know, the big if there is if they're well hydrated, meaning that, um, you know, they shouldn't be um, on the retail lot for too long. They need to be hydrated and watered when they're brought in and set up. They ought to have a proper tree stand, you know, that can hold about a gallon of water or so. And when that's the case, um, these trees do very well 
you know, and um, really hold up as well as the gold standard, which for the West Coast would be noble fir, and for the East Coast would be Fraser fir. Those are two species that have uh, really good post-harvest characteristics. The issue becomes one of um, shipping these trees longer distances. So prior to Christmas, um, usually people now begin buying their Christmas trees. The kickoff is around Thanksgiving. You know, it used to be when I was growing up, you'd yeah. get a tree a week before Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> so now instead of like three, two, three weeks on display, um, you know, we're asking these trees to hold up for four, five, even six weeks. Yeah. Um, you know, but if and, you wait, if you wait too long anymore, Rick, there won't be anything left. So you're almost forced to buy four weeks ahead of time. You don't have an option. That's right. And so, um, yeah. So when, you know, when these trees are actually cut in the conditions they're cut under, uh, let's say at the end of October, beginning of November, when, um, you know, when these trees are being, when harvest begins um, for that wholesale market where these trees are being shipped, um, you know, that, you know, that really does affect things. And so we know pretty confidently that these species we're evaluating um, will be pretty good for like what I would call a local choose and cut market where people are coming out to the farm. The trees aren't going to be on um, uh, on a lot for too long. They'll rehydrate very well when someone recuts the, uh, the butt end of the tree and sets it up in their home. Um, so we're pretty confident about that. Um, we need a little bit more research on what happens to these trees when they're cut early, when they're shipped far distances, um, when they're sitting out on the lot of, let's say, a big box store, um, you know, in that time from detachment from the root system um, until display is quite a bit longer. And then there are a lot of things within that value chain that can desiccate the trees as well, um, you know, so. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll pay a little extra for a con color fur. That, that's my favorite. Uh, yeah. But um, great, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I like them. Nice look to it. And I think they have a nice scent also. So uh, we got a lot to cover because, uh, you know, we really want to get to this international ex extension work that you do. But I do briefly want to talk about the other component that you mentioned, what your, your, your work is consisting of, is um, teaching the, uh, these woody ornamental classes. So you've been teaching these now for uh, over two decades, and you know you've seen a number of students that uh, come through. Have you noticed any trends or interests with um, changing with these students from initially when you started teaching to kind of where you are now? I mean, more questions or interest in natives, or more interest in in shrubs versus trees, or I mean, any kind of trend that you've noticed with them as they pass through. So you you mentioned Tom. I've been teaching these classes for for twenty plus years now. Is that a nice way to say you're getting old? <laughs> no, no, it's just a, you're just a wealth of knowledge, like a wise old owl, right? You know, one of the things that I have noticed over at least over that period of time is that um, applications that the students will use either uh, computer-based applications or apps on their phones have gotten much, much better. Mm. Uh, and so there is, I, I feel like, an assist from, from these applications. Um, and so that can be anything from um, assist in um, identifying a, an actual species. So you can pluck off a leaf, you know, take a picture of it on your yeah, phone, yeah. And 
some apps um, that do, I would say, a relatively good job of, of ballparking what that species is. Um, so just how um, IT savvy the students have become is, is one change. Um, is that making them learn, learn it better, or do you think it's hindering them? You well, know, are they relying too much on technology to help learn or solve the problem? Well, some of the better apps, when we're walking around on campus identifying plants, you know, I'll come up to a species maybe that we haven't covered in class. We'll pull off a leaf, let them use their app and see how good the app uh, does. Yeah. Plant. It's about 50%, 40, 50% correct. Mm. You know, so. You know, I'm not real comfortable with that because I, you know, I, I really want, it's okay in terms of maybe getting it within the genus, but, mm. you know, they need to do better than that. Um, but some of the other, you know, some of the other aspects of that is that, um, you know, we're looking at these plants when they're in, uh, in season and then through the fall. And so we don't necessarily get to see these plants let's say when they're in flower in spring, you know, and so they can pull these, these species up on their phone and see that aspect, you know, while we're right out there looking at the plant, let's say in September. Um, and so there are things like that that are useful. Uh, the other thing that I think is uh, I've noticed with students now compared to maybe a, even a decade ago, or certainly two decades ago, is that they are, um, much more aware of uh, sustainability in the landscape, you know, and they're aware that the choices that they can make in terms of, let's say, designing um, a landscape uh, and what woody ornamentals they design into that landscape relate to sustainability. And so we're talking more now about, um, you know, plants, for instance, that are prone to diseases or insects that might require a higher level of management versus some other species that um, may be a little bit underutilized, um, but are certainly more resilient in the landscape. And I think that's a very good trend. You know, so we can walk around on campus and if we use the example of conifers, you know, we can see um, hemlock woolly adelgid on hemlock. You know, we can see rhizophera on um, Colorado blue spruce, and we can see rab decline on Douglas fir, uh, white pine decline. They see these problems in these very commonly used species of conifers, but then we can go around the corner or go to another part of canvas and see things like Turkish fir and Nordman fir in the landscape. Uh, or oriental spruce, species that don't seem to have as many of these problems right now, um, and talk about sustainability and building sustainable landscapes based on um, our species selection. You know, what are the genetics in that species that are going to make that a resilient plant, um, especially in the face of climate change, where we might have um, less typical patterns of rainfall, uh, for instance. You know, so that, um, you know, that's something that uh, I think is much more in the forefront now. Yeah, that is interesting. We had another uh, podcast guest recently who also does teaching um, at the the undergrad level, and we asked a similar question, and, and he had mentioned that students seem interested both in sustainability and in um, utility. Um, so, 
uh, incorporating plants into the landscape that maybe are, you know, they're native um, and, you know, they're ornamental, but also produce some sort of fruit that can be harvested or um, there was like an increased interest in edible, you know, edible landscaping. We were kind of wondering if, you know, if the pandemic had something to do with that, with people thinking about utility. Um, and I, I kind of feel like with conifers, they've been used in the landscape in almost too utilitarian a way. <laughs> and I think that some people, um, you know, I, I think arborvitae is used as a hedge or to block out your neighbor or to shield your air conditioning unit or, you know, <laughs> I, it's almost like um, I, I, I really love when people express, you know, interest and um, uh, just the love of different conifers and what they can um, sort of add to a landscape besides just, you know, having them block things or shade, you know, uh, protect things from wind or something like that, because they they are kind of used almost like, you know, furniture almost in, in the landscape. And so mentioned um, arborvitae in that. Yeah, that's a, you know, that's a major um, food source for deer. Across that's what I plant mine for, Rick. I plant mine for deer. <laughs> right. You know, so the hunters out there are certainly uh, interested in keeping our deer fat and sassy over the wintertime. That's, you know, it's really an interesting point. One thing that, uh, well, a couple of points. One is that um, definitely COVID had an impact on people sticking around uh, home and um, and gardening more and taking care of their mm -hmm. landscapes and paying attention to what's going on in their landscapes, um, you know, like vegetable seed sales went through the roof. Um, I think generally we're coming to a place now where um, people are noticing both multi-use plants as well as some plants in the landscape that, uh, you know, you mentioned edible plants. And so there's, you know, there's interest in plants now like pawpaw. Um, and, uh, you know, plants that we might call dual purpose plants. Uh, there's a lot of interest in um, indigenous or native edible plants or wild food species. Um, I saw a, uh, uh, an announcement recently, I think it was for a seminar um, for, for ramps, you know, which mm. are, uh, you know, type of scallion, you know, it's a native plant in the Appalachians that, people will, you know, will harvest out of the forest and use like onions or scallions. Uh, there's a little town in West Virginia that has an annual ramp festival. Mm -hmm. yep. you know, so I think there is some increased interest in that, um, you know, and that really focuses on a lot of what my international work in Southeast Asia um, uh, addresses is um, using multi-use plants, um, you know, both um, as uh, kind of a, a poverty alleviation tool, as well as ways to diversify um, uh, diets in, in those kinds of places. Hmm. Yeah, that's a, a perfect segue into <laughs> all our questions about your international extension work. Um, and so I'm kind of curious how, uh, you know, obviously that um, study topic is pretty different from, um, you know, the first part of our conversation and your extension work here with Christmas tree growers. So I'm kind of curious how uh, that transition happened for you and what made you interested in pursuing work in Southeast Asia uh, with wild plants and seeds and indigenous uh, foodways and things like that. Um, I, well, I kind of backed into it. I have no, um, no background in 
um, agricultural development um, and things related to that. Um, but I've always been interested in, in uh, tropical places and the opportunity came along um, to, um, to compete for a grant um, that was offered by the U.S. Agency for International Development. And this particular grant, one of their priority areas, had to do with genetic diversity and conserving uh, genetic diversity. And I had a friend that worked at an NGO um, who was a real plant nerd kind of guy, like I am. And we started talking about the erosion of the genetic diversity um, and uh, in what we might propose as a, as a project. And he was working in Thailand at the time. And that's where this work began, basically. Uh, this NGO was based in Thailand, and he had really expansive knowledge um, about um, a lot of these plants. And so we basically just had the idea of, you know, let's, let's start mapping and characterizing how these plants are used, um, who are the gatekeepers within these villages in Southeast Asia, and in this case, Northern Thailand, you know, who are the people that are, um, that are making decisions about propagating them, who uh, hold the, hold the knowledge about how to use them. There's this whole area of indigenous knowledge around these plants. And what was interesting is that these plants are in what we call the informal seed system meaning that you generally can't go um, to an agricultural supply store and get seeds for them or mm -hmm. find them in a nursery. They're just indigenous plants that people have used uh, generation after generation, um, and they're there. They're threatened because a lot of younger people are leaving these rural areas for the cities or um, uh, wage labor work in neighboring countries. And so how to manage these plants and knowledge about them is eroding as these younger generations uh, leave the village, because often that information is passed on verbally. It's not written down anywhere. Mm. Um, and so that was another component of this first project is, you know, let's identify these plants. Um, let's see how they're being used. Let's see um, if the positive impact of some of these species could be magnified uh, or optimized by collecting them and in, in uh, learning more about them. And so we really, the first project, we really started going out pre-dawn in all of these, uh, you know, village produce markets, talking about what the villagers were growing, where they were growing it. Um, then we would go back to their farms and see these systems that you know, to the uh, to the unaided eye would look like just a mass of plants, like a jungly uh, arrangement of species. But actually, these very complex systems that were planted with um, with intention and very, very diverse plants that had multiple uses, they would be used for cash flow in the marketplace. Many of them were extremely high in micronutrients. Uh, some of them could be used for um, uh, oil production. The seeds had high oil content, so they could be pressed for oil, um, construction materials, uh, even the use of some species as living fences um, to uh, restrict mm -hmm. livestock. And so it was just a, a fascinating little project, and we just kind of took that and ran with it. And, you know, now 
15 years later, um, it continues. So I'm curious so, when you're, oh, sorry, Tom. No, go ahead, Margaret. Go ahead. <laughs> when you're, um, you know, and, and I wonder this about a lot of international extension, um, you know, a big part of our work is connecting with growers and earning trust, you know, in the communities where we're working as extension um, educators. And so I wonder, and that can take a long time, even in, you know, where we live here uh, to establish trust and um, be able to learn from one another. And I, I imagine that that is kind of amplified when when you're uh, overseas and um, interfacing with different cultures. And I'm sure there's a language barrier there. Um, so what was your experience with working in these communities? And how did you sort of establish the trust that you needed to um to learn from them and to, uh, you know, do the work that you sort of came to do. Well, in a, in a way, I, um, I kind of staffed my weakness in that, you know, I certainly hadn't worked there previously, but we relied on some really excellent collaborators, um, uh, several NGOs. One is called Echo, based in Fort Myers, Florida, but they um, had a resource center in Chiang Mai, Thailand. Um, there was another NGO called the Upland Holistic Development Center um, and several others. And in that part of the world, there is extension work done, but it's often these NGOs that are doing it. It usually is not university-based. And so these NGOs had long um, standing experience working with some of these uh, communities. Um, and so we were able to kind of plug into that system, which saved a lot of time and a lot of effort and really relied on um, that local expertise to essentially gain access to, um, you know, a lot of the um, the key stakeholders that had this knowledge, had access to um, some of the things that we needed to do the to do the research. Um, so we had a graduate student who would essentially go into various villages and live there for a month at a time, um, kind of doing inventories of these species and characterizing how they were used. You know, and so we really needed a lot of cooperation at the local level, and these NGOs provided that. And so interesting that extension even in, in underdeveloped countries like that um, where there is still a, you know a lot of poverty in rural areas um, and a, a lot less infrastructure extension is really still important and, and the basics of extension still apply there um, you know where people go to get their information um, how farmers learn from each other and some of the the basic tenets of extension in a in a developed country you can still see that at play in some of these um, these places where we've worked. So when I was communicating with you about appearing on this podcast, you were talking about a couple of things, and one of them was grafting. And here in the United States, you know, grafting is often done for uh, some root disease issues or um, you know, in vegetables, at least, or to produce, uh, you know, a faster growing plant. You know, what are the reasons over there that, that you're doing grafting? Very similar or, or some different um, things going on? That's a great question, Tom. Um, the main reason has to do with uh, disease control. Okay. And so one of our projects 
focused on uh, grafting uh, tomato, market-demanded tomato cultivars onto eggplant rootstock. And one of the reasons uh, to do that is because, for instance, this project we were uh, uh, working on uh, was in Cambodia. And during the rainy season, actually year-round, Cambodia imports about 70% of the vegetables that are consumed in the country. And one particularly difficult time of year is during the rainy season where uh, it literally does rain every day. And so so you're dealing with very saturated soils and um, uh, tomato production just about ceases um, because of soil-borne diseases. Um, But at the same time, uh, eggplant is much more tolerant um, you know, to waterlogged soils, much more resistant to some of the soil-borne diseases uh, that they struggle with when they're trying to grow tomatoes. Um, and so one of our projects was to evaluate a number of different disease-resistant lines of eggplant, including some local ones that villagers would use um, just to grow eggplant, and then grafting tomatoes on yep. these in uh, growing them during the rating season in very saturated soils. And um, the results were just excellent. It really opened up some possibilities in terms of supplying tomatoes to local markets, as well as, um, you know, household nutrition and diversifying uh, household um, diets. And so we were really very successful in doing this. And so one of the interesting things was we tested a number of eggplant rootstocks Uh, We obtained the germplasm from the World Vegetable Center in Taiwan, as well as some of the local eggplants that you find growing wild. And some of the wild eggplants there in these villages where we were working may produce, you know, an eggplant the size of your thumbnail, um, but were just big, tough plants that were two or three years old, uh, but we could still use them as rootstocks. And um, all of these... um, World Vegetable Center rootstocks, as well as the local ones, were open pollinated, meaning that we could also train the farmers on how to save seed, collect save seed, um, store seed for the next growing season. So they basically wouldn't have to purchase the seed for the rootstock. You know, they basically could just grow that and keep that resource there, um, you know, on their own homestead or in the village. And so then they can put, they could select what market demanded varieties they want uh, and grow their own eggplant rootstock. And then we focused on um, using a number of different NGOs um, and some governmental agencies as well to do a lot of training on how to graft. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, especially the older women in these villages took to it really well. You know, they were used to sewing, to, you know, using um, nimble hands, nimble fingers to um, and were really excellent, turned out to be excellent grafting. And so we focused on using local resources. um, And, um, uh, you know, I think it was it was quite successful using, you know, local materials to make things like healing chambers and things that you would need that would be fairly low tech, but worked. Um, you know, and so it was really an effort to get around some of those disease pressures of the rainy season. Um, you know, we started looking at uh, tomato grafted onto eggplant, uh, but you could also graft sweet peppers onto hot peppers. Um, and there's, you know, some other things that could be done. 
Um, but that's one that worked really well. It's really now been scaled up. We um, collaborated with uh, the National University of Battambang in the north of Cambodia and their horticulture program um, to really scale up this grafting technology. And so um, it's now pretty much being done commercially mm-hmm. uh, in, in certain areas of Cambodia. So that was, you know, we feel like that was a, a success story. Yeah, big impact. Absolutely. Wow. Um, that is really cool to hear about um, and that it's been a long lasting project. Um, and to hear kind of how you landed there is is so interesting um, uh, and and very cool that that you were able to kind of learn a, a new a new uh, skill set, I guess, or to explore a different part of horticulture than you originally set out to do. Um, and so I think at this point, we're kind of wrapping up here with our conversation, Rick. Um, we really thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And we always like to end the episode by asking our guests a personal question about themselves. And so uh, when you're not working um, in horticulture and, and for the university, what do you like to do with your time? Good question. I am a, I'm a walker, a hiker. And so um, when I'm here, uh, local in central Pennsylvania. Um, A number of times a week, I'm out um, on the game lands. Uh, So here in Center County, we have a game lands uh, 176 uh, called Scotia by the the locals. And um, so I'm always back there, uh, you know, hiking. Um, I have a son who also lives out in Montana who has a a small ranch out there. And I spent uh, about six years out in the Bozeman area. And so I go back there every summer and uh, like to hike in the wilderness areas out there. And uh, we usually climb a mountain or two, nothing technical, um, but climbing and hiking is, uh, is uh, what I'm passionate about. Oh, wonderful. Montana must be beautiful. Certain times of the year it is. Oh, that's great. It's cool to learn that about you. Um, well, thank you again uh, for being a uh, guest on our podcast here. We've really enjoyed talking to you, Rick, and look forward to working with you um, more in the future. It's been fun, Margaret. Tom, thanks yep. for having me. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. All right. Take care. <laughs>